announcements that we begin our Explore God series, along with uh, nearly 30 churches in town, certainly a few dozen churches and other uh, small groups that are scattered throughout the town. We will be spending the next seven weeks in discussion of some of the most significant questions that people ask in life. And so whether you are a longtime Grace Covenant person or this is your first time, whether you know exactly what you believe or you have no idea of what you believe, uh, whether you are one who is a skeptic or whether you are somebody who uh, is, considers yourself to be a committed Christian, we're glad you're here and are participating in that discussion with us, at, at least for today. The question we want to consider this morning is, does life have a purpose? So I'm going to ask if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You know your bulletin says something else, but that was early in the week and things changed uh, during the week. So, uh, And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask if we'll dim the lights and cue uh, a video for our consideration. Why were we put here? I think everyone wants to know, why were we put here? Why are we on earth? My purpose in life is to, um, to live a normal life, to, to be uh, a citizen, a productive citizen. I don't fully know why I'm here, but I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that because then that creates endless possibilities for myself. I would like to make a difference, even if it's only in one life, I'd prefer to do more. Because I think the meaning of life, in my opinion, is to find something that you're passionate about and use that passion to make the world around you a better place. As I said, I have been looking forward to this day and the opportunity to look at this particular question, does life have a purpose for uh, most of the summer? And the reason for that is there is a sense in which it's a very simple answer. Does life have a purpose? The answer is yes. Now we can all go home. Now, um, but, uh, but being Presbyterian, we also have a little bit more information about that because the first question and answer of our shorter catechism question is, what is the primary purpose of man? And the answer is, the primary purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so when I was thinking of this question for the months ahead and looking, doing some of the reading, some of the studying, considering putting things aside for the preparation this week, I felt like the ball was kind of teed up on a, on a tee, ready just to be to hit at any time because, you know, we already know the answer is yes and we even have a document that is foundational to our church that gives us even a little bit more information than that. So how hard could it be? Until sometime in the early part of this week, it, it dawned on me that essentially what I'm being asked to do is to answer the question, what's the meaning of life? And then I started thinking, well, this might be a little more complex than I was thinking as I've been preparing during this summer. In fact, it can be quite overwhelming. Does life have a purpose and is, what's the meaning of life? Those are questions that seem to be almost used interchangeably in various articles and journals and uh, in commentaries. 
And, and so as I began thinking about it and realizing the complexity uh, of what was involved and thinking of the question not just in terms of what is the purpose but the meaning of life, I, I was reminded of my old high school and college lit classes and what Shakespeare said through Macbeth when Macbeth says this, life is but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And for some reason that stuck in my mind and I began to worry that my message would be but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. And that's not what uh, I want by any means. And so, you know, you have this overwhelming question that's a vitally important question. So where do you go? Where can I find a, 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 at least something that is simple to begin with to give an explanation of the meaning of life? I could turn to the great philosophers, and so I did. Turn to those great British philosophers of a previous generation, Monty Python. And so while people were holed up in between my studying, I first started with some clips and I figured what the heck and I just uh, pulled up on Amazon and watched Monty Python's The Meaning of Life again. If you're not familiar with that particular movie, came out in the early 80s, or if you're not particularly familiar with Monty Python, at the end of that movie, toward the end uh, of that movie, there is a scene where a bunch of business executives from a company that the, is called the, the Big Corporation of America, they're all seated around the boardroom table. And the CEO or the chairman of the company opens up his agenda and then he looks to the people seated around the table and he says, item six on the agenda, the meaning of life. And then he looks at one of the men in the room and he says, now Harry, you've had some thoughts on this. And Harry responds, that's right, yeah. I've had a team working on this over the past few weeks and what we've come up with, it can be reduced to two fundamental concepts. First, people are not wearing enough hats. Second, matter is energy. In the universe, there are many energy fields which we cannot normally perceive. Some energies have a spiritual source which act upon a person's soul. However, this soul does not exist ab initio. It has to be brought into existence by a process of guided self-observation. However, this is rarely achieved owing to man's unique ability to be distracted from spiritual matters by everyday trivia. The room falls silent and everybody is thinking about the significance of this insight. One of the men leans forward very thoughtfully and he speaks to Harry and he says, what was that about the hats again? <laughs> you don't have to be a fan of Monty Python to recognize not only do they take serious matters to be very simple and, very, uh, but they also, and, and silly, but they, take, uh, they make things that are very silly speak to things that are very profound. And one of the things that they are highlighting is the fact that, as indicated in their meaning of life, is that there are profound questions and there are spiritual realities that bear upon the soul. And yet, sometimes we don't ask those questions because 
we are just so easily distracted, whether it's by people not wearing hats or by any of the number of entertainments and things that are around us that can occupy our minds and our time. And so the reality is that we're not always conscious and we don't always think, and many of us probably aren't losing a lot of sleep over questions such as, what is the meaning of life? And is there purpose in life? Now, whether we're asking those questions or not, one thing is certain is that every one of us operates with a set of assumptions that function to dictate the way that we live our lives, the priorities and the things that we do. We just have this assumption that there are certain things that are valuable, that give our lives meaning, that therefore inform our purpose, and then we carry out our lives uh, with the assumption that those things are true and that we will find what we're looking for. We will find the answer to our hopes and to our promises in living our lives according to those assumptions, whether they are conscious or not. There are also times when, whether it is our normal pattern or not, to be thinking about such deep questions, that we become more inclined to do so. Usually it's when there's something major that is taking place in our lives. It may be becoming a parent for the first time and looking at that new child and realizing everything is now very different. You're responsible not only for yourself and even just in partnership, but now you're responsible for somebody else and for the future. It may come when you receive a report that your health or your job is threatened. It may come when somebody who you love or at least that you are close to dies. Those are times when we tend to stop and to at least for the moment consider some of life's bigger questions asking, what does it mean? Is there a purpose? And the reality is, even in this past week, we've had two things that are such occasions. One is the threat of a hurricane, recognizing how helpless we are, no matter how much we may prepare. And second was the anniversary of 9-11, which reminds us of, really, that very same message. Two things that make people stop and to think, what is the meaning of everything. What is the meaning of our lives? The question that we still wrestle with is where are we able to find the answers? The reality is that we're not going to be able to give and get a complete answer because the question is beyond us. It is bigger than us. But what we can do is grow deeper and our understanding of the questions and of the promises that are given to us in this life. So I was thinking about it this week. I asked myself, where would be a good place to go? Where has God spoken to us in a way that would address these questions of life? And I realized that there may be no better place than in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is one New Testament scholar, theologian really, who has written this about this book. The great Hebrew philosopher who wrote this book called Ecclesiastes calls us to joy, but to a joy which thinks, a joy that does not shrink back from the hard questions. So with that assurance, I decided that maybe we can gain from Solomon's wisdom and Solomon's insight as to this question of the meaning of life, or at least 
wonder if he can point us in the right direction. The book of Ecclesiastes essentially is the story of a man who engaged in a radical experiment to see if he can find the source of joy and satisfaction in this life. And in order to do that, in order to determine the meaning and the ultimate purpose of life, he engages in an experiment. He pours himself into experience. In verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 1, he writes this, I applied my mind or my heart to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, the chasing after the wind. Now, as we're looking at Ecclesiastes this morning, I don't want to just cherry-pick on some passages, although we will move around a little bit, but I'd like to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, and then kind of build from there and see if we can gain some benefit from Solomon's experience. And so if you'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I'll stop there for just a second because uh, this, this book is widely assumed to be written by Solomon. Some scholars uh, challenge that. Solomon's name is never used here. Where it says here the words of the preacher in the Hebrew, it is the Koheleth. There are some kind of snooty theological scholars who will refer to this entire book as Koheleth. Um, but almost every translation I have refers to it as Ecclesiastes, so I figured I'll just go with what they've done before me. But we do have reason to believe that it is Solomon uh, that is writing this. Preacher, uh, Koheleth is preacher, teacher, and has a number of other titles to, that goes with it. But he indicates that he has, is king and that he is the son of David. Now, if you go study the scriptures, you find out only one of David's sons was the king, or at least was legitimately the king, and that would have been Solomon. And so we can understand that tradition and the implications here are that this is Solomon who is speaking to us, a man who we are told is the wisest man who had ever lived. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it, rests, where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, if you switch to chapter 2, reading verses, 11 and two, uh, chapters, uh, verses 10 and 11. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, 
for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The words of our God. Now, even though Solomon engages in a fascinating pursuit in order to come to some understanding of the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the source of joy and satisfaction, as you read through this, if you are familiar with this book at all, it really can be a quite discouraging book in many ways, particularly the first third of this book, because he over and over again repeats that basically everything is meaningless. The word that here that he says vanity, it doesn't translate, it's not about, it's all about me when we talk about in our culture somebody who is vain. But vanity, in a broader sense, deals with the meaninglessness and the frustration that we experience in this life. The foolishness of the pursuit of things, thinking that they are going to bring us the happiness and the satisfaction, or that through these things we're going to find the meaning and the purpose that we all desire. And so therefore it seems frustrating because we go to this book and we go to the Bible and we go to God in order that we can get answers to questions that we have like where will I find meaning and where will I find purpose. And here God has chosen to record for us the answer of where Solomon didn't find meaning and purpose and the source of happiness. But God has a reason for that. And we will see here in a moment what that reason is. But in short, what we see in Solomon is that he poured himself into everything that people are inclined to pour themselves into, thinking that it will deliver to them the joy that they want, or the peace that they hope for, or the understanding of the big questions of life, the meaning and the purpose that we have in life. And Solomon, through the first portion of this book, says over and over again, all right, I tried it, and it was meaningless. What I want to do is touch on a couple of the things that he poured himself into, just as a, as a quick survey. And then see why God has given us this book. And so that you can see why I felt this was an important perspective for us toward gaining some understanding of the question, does life have a purpose? The first thing that Solomon, that we'll see that Solomon poured himself into was seeking after pleasure. It, it makes sense. Philosophers tell us that whatever we do, we do for pleasure. C.S. Lewis says that we pursue pleasure. Our problem is that not that we pursue pleasure, but that we sell out so easily for things. That there are greater pleasures to be had, but we, we sell for, for cheaper things. But Solomon, understanding that Pleasure is the reason that we do everything. It's the reason that some pour themselves into hedonism, and it's the reason some go to stoicism and withdraw, thinking that there's a greater pleasure later if they don't engage and indulge themselves. Solomon chose the previous. He chose to pour himself into everything. And it's interesting, you have a list in chapter 2 of things, you know, basically from verses 1 through 10, of various things that... Uh, he poured himself into things that, uh, that we would consider to be pleasure things. 
Uh, Zach Eswine, who I believe taught at Covenant Seminary, was he there with you, Ben, um, has a book called Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. And he says this, in Ecclesiastes 2, the preacher or Koheleth basically tells us that life under the sun has basic amusements available to us on its closet shelves. And then we see in verse 2, it talks about jokes or, or humor, verse 3, alcohol or intoxicants. Verse 4 is, talks about uh, the, the enjoyment of the arts. Verses 5 and 6 deals with nature. Verses 7 and 8 deal with uh, money and stuff. Verses, another one in verse 8 is music. Another one in verse 8 is, is sex. And, and, and all of these things are listed that Solomon seems to have some understanding because he talks about them. And these are the areas where people think that they're going to find their purpose or at least they're going to find pleasure. And the reality is the reason people think that is because in these things people find pleasure. And so Solomon engaged in every want of these hedonistic areas. It wasn't anything that his appetite desired that he denied himself. He partied like nobody else had ever partied. And the, probably all of these elements were part of his, of, his, of his parties. Everything he could think of, he engaged in until he ran out of fantasies and he couldn't think of anything else that he was going to do. In the end, what does he find? He says it's all meaningless. I heard one person describe it this way as the sensation that Solomon was experiencing or the reality that he had come to is very much like that when you were kids and you had really, really, really wanted a particular gift and you made sure your parents knew that you really, really, really wanted that gift and then on Christmas morning there under the tree was something that was wrapped up that could be that gift that you really, really wanted. And so you go to that and you tear the paper only to find out that the, or now to find out that the thing that you desired most in this world, the thing that would give your life meaning, that would therefore make life perfect, you got it. And you poured yourself into it. To lunch. And by the end of the week, it was in the back of the garage, only to be pulled out again when your mom was going to have a garage sale. And one of the things that we see from Solomon is that while we remember with humor not only that experience that we had, and sometimes with humor when we see our own kids going through that, Solomon says, hey, this isn't just Christmas. This is your life, everything. Whatever it is that you're going to pour yourself into, sooner or later, it's going, you'll be satiated. It, it's just not going to bring the pleasure. It's not going to give you what you hoped for. So Solomon crosses pleasure off of his list of things that are going to give purpose to life. So Solomon does what all of us do when we come to the realization about the shallowness and the emptiness of living lives for mere parties and, and pleasure. He decides he's going to become something. He's going to throw himself into his work. Now, his work is a little different than our work. I mean, he was king. His dad had owned the company before and then said, here, it's all yours now. And so, I, you know, my dad's done well, but he didn't have a company to give me, and, and it wasn't the kingdom uh, on this. But, you know, he decides he's going to throw himself into his work nevertheless. And, and he really does engage and do tremendous things for, for, for the people in Israel. He not only builds buildings, but builds houses, and he builds parks. And in those parks, he puts vineyards, and he plants forests, and he plants gardens. But what does he find? In verses 3 and 4, he says this. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? 
Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And then later we see in verses 11 and uh, 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 verses 10 and 11, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been done already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of things later uh, yet to be among those who come after. What's Solomon saying here? He's telling us that for all of our work, we never really finish anything. There's always more work to come. There's always more work to do. And even if you become one who is very accomplished, eventually you will retire or we all will die. And once we have retired or once we have died, no matter how much we have poured ourselves into our work, there is still work to be done. Someone else is going to come along and do it. And eventually, not only is somebody going to come along and do the work, but they're not even going to remember the work that you did or remember that you did work at all. Solomon, as he has poured himself into his work, says essentially that no matter how much he's done, it's like pouring himself out on a, on a treadmill. He's getting nowhere. He gets things that are accomplished, but there's still so much more, and he's accomplished nothing. And now he's thinking about how life is and those who will come after he's gone, and they won't even care. I've experienced that sensation a number of times when I visited the campus of the University of Tennessee, beginning only a few years after I had graduated. There's a number of places on campus that hold very fond memories for me. Significant events took place on that campus. There's a particular spot where Carol and I got engaged. Been by that spot. And just like it was when I was in school, People are coming, people are going, people are going to those places. It's exactly the way it was before, but the people who are there now couldn't care less that I'm standing there. And they couldn't care less that these are significant places for me. Because life just goes on. And business goes on as usual. And the next generation comes and they do what they do. And we become an afterthought in our lives, and Solomon says, in our work. We have another challenge as well, because if you think about it this way, if we're going to find our meaning or purpose for our lives in our work, we have to ask this question. What happens then to our purpose when we can never or no longer do that work? Think of somebody whose life work is as a concert pianist or a skilled surgeon who develops significant arthritis in their fingers. They can no longer perform the way they had performed before. So does that mean that they no longer have purpose in this life, that their purpose is only in their productivity and their proficiency? Think of an airline pilot or a bus driver who then develop problems with their eyes. Do their lives no longer have purpose? Is there no meaning for that because they cannot do the work they were done doing before? Now, of course, most people can go find something else to do if they have the opportunity. The economy allows for them to do that. But sooner or later, the skills diminish. Everything goes away. 
And so if that's the case, that we're going to find our purpose in life through our work, then it means that when we can't do the work, that we would have no purpose. That's why Solomon, as he considered his work, he said the whole thing is meaningless. Now, someone might point out, well, of course, it's not just work. I mean, lots of people go through the motions, and the reason they don't find any significance is because they don't actually get anything accomplished. They don't do anything. And Solomon was considered that as well. And so he points not just to the toils that he was engaged in, but the accomplishments that were his as well. Now, again, it's, it's tough to identify with a guy whose dad gave him the kingdom, and then all of the wealth that comes along with being the king in the first place. I can't help, as I was thinking about this this week, of I just in the back of my head, keep hearing Mel Brooks saying, it's good to be the king. Some of you don't know who Mel Brooks is, but that's besides the point. So, And certainly Solomon experienced whatever was good to be the king, but Solomon seems to be saying here is that he didn't give himself just to work. He didn't want to be just another one, another cog in the machine. He didn't want to just be one of those drones that you see like in the movie 1984 where people just go and they work and there's just no life. It just, there's a deadness of the repetition, that there is something that he wants to accomplish. And even though Solomon was given a position and an opportunity that was higher than most of us, he very definitely was born on third base, he didn't choose to live out his life with the endowment. He poured himself into the opportunities that he had and invested himself and his resources there. And so even though he was born into great wealth, he became the richest man in the world. He became the most powerful man in the world. He accumulated everything that he had ever wanted and he achieved pretty much everything that he sought to do. And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, like chasing after the wind. And we see contemporary illustrations of that very same sentiment as well. It's been a number of years, but I remember an interview that Tom Brady gave with 60 Minutes, and as I looked, it was back in 2005. He was about 30 years old, and by the time Brady was 30 years old, he had won three Super, super Bowls, he was considered to be the greatest quarterback who has ever lived, other than those who know that Peyton Manning is better. Um, of course, he went to the University of Tennessee, so. Um, he's then since added another Super Bowl. He's married to a supermodel, has a multi-million dollar contract, endorsements that add even more to his bank account, and every time he goes to work, or at least half the time he goes to work, whenever he goes to work in his hometown, there are 80 plus thousand people that are screaming his name and really even worship the guy. Sounds like a nice working environment. But in this interview, here's what Brady says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there is something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what, what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I, I did that. I think, God, it, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. 
So he expresses something that others have known. I, as I was looking at, at different examples of famous people, I, I ran across a story that I had forgotten about, but Boris Becker, who was uh, a champion tennis player, at one time had risen to number one in the world, and, and yet became suicidal, multiple attempts at suicide, an interview that he had given. He said this, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player ever. I was rich, I had all the material possessions I needed, but it's the old song of the movie stars and the pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. And countless stories, uh, whether they're professional athletes or movie stars or even successful business people who have achieved everything that they sought, they are at the apex of their professions and they are admired by people. They testify to experiencing an emptiness. Why is this? The reality is it's because they've been to the mountaintop found it lacking. There's a novelist named Jack Higgins who was asked what he would like to have known when he was younger and he said this, that when you get to the top of the mountain, that there's nothing there. That's what he wanted to know. Wood said that he would like to have known. Solomon was at the top of the mountain and realized there's got to be more than this. And so he pours himself not just into his work, into achievements, but then thinking, well, maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's not about stuff, but it's about people. And it certainly is a better answer. But if you know anything about Solomon's life, that his whole life was filled with conflict and relational dysfunction and pain. No doubt some of that had by the fact that he chose to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. That doesn't help had kids that he probably didn't even know the names. He certainly didn't know their birth dates and that creates dysfunction and you know all sorts of things that go on there. We'll leave those facts aside. We're all broken. He has his own brokennesses. But what he experienced is the same thing that we all understand from our own lives is that in every relationship there's a level of conflict and sometimes the conflict becomes intense. Sometimes the conflict isn't resolved. Sometimes there is betrayal. And sometimes there is incredible distancing and estrangement. And even in the best of relationships, couples that we see that have been together for 50, 60, 70 years, I ran somebody's grandparents, um, were, I heard about recently, somebody in the church, I just don't remember who, and the family has stayed tight. Somebody eventually dies. With that, even though there is a sense of completion, there is pain, an absence, dissatisfaction. Solomon says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will be, not be remembered by those who follow them. And he's talking about the fact that as important as relationships are, if the relationships are where we're going to find our meaning and our purpose in life, we're going to find ourselves feeling empty and disappointed. And we understand this in a very practical way. 
Despite the fact that we live in a time where Ancestry.com has become increasingly popular, most people still don't know who their ancestors were. Let me do a little test. How many of you in here could tell us the first names of your great-great-grandparents' hands? You are better than the first service. <laughs> but we're still a pretty pathetic bunch. If that was the measure of life, the meaning of life, and the life that gives us purpose about relationship. Because I saw maybe, you know, seven, eight hands going up out of well, over 100 people. We don't even know it on our own lines. We, and, and the same is going to be true for us. The time will come and we are not going to be remembered at all. And those who follow us, they, they won't be remembered either. And so Solomon concludes that even relationships are ultimately meaningless. So now we can go home, right? I mean, if you're here for the first time, you're thinking, wow, this place stinks. <laughs> I came here to feel good, to find answers to my questions. All you did is tell me that there are no answers to my questions, at least from the wisest man who's ever lived, right? Except that what we need to understand is that Solomon, through this beginning of this book, and throughout the whole book, but the beginning of this book, has done us an incredible favor. Because he's warning us by his own experience, and he's inviting us to consider our own lives. For some reason, Jim Cantore came to mind this week as I was studying, and Solomon is kind of our own Jim Cantore here. He goes into the storm, and he tells us what it's like and why we don't want to be there. And then we evaluate our own circumstances, the storms that we're in, the things that we're putting our hopes in that would make us be you know, where we're being foolish. And Solomon essentially challenges us to evaluate our lives and to find where we're placing our hope for meaning and to ask ourselves if these things are actually delivering what we hope that they want. So the reality is until we are dissatisfied, we will never look elsewhere for what it is that we need. Solomon is showing us that the areas that we are inclined to go look in, they're not going to deliver. But Solomon also has some significant words here that help us to be encouraged at the same time that are keys to understanding this book. First of those is the phrase, under the sun. See, it's in this passage and it's in this book, it's repeated 28 times. Under the sun. And under the sun is pointing us to the reality that everything in this world that is under the sun will ultimately leave us feeling empty if we believe that we are going to gain from it our, our purpose and our meaning. But Solomon also suggests to us in this book that there is something that is beyond the sun. Turn with me to chapter 3. And in verses 10 and 11, we read this. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. See, that phrase, God has put eternity into man's heart, is significant for us. Because he's telling us that God has hardwired us for something that is beyond the sun. He's hardwired us for meaning and for purpose. God is the one who put that 
hunger and that desire in you, but it is for something beyond the Son. In John 10.10, Jesus declares this thing. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And in that declaration, Jesus is claiming to be the very thing, the answer, the remedy, the provision of what God has placed a desire in our hearts. He has come to give us the life that we want. And in that is the understanding of meaning. But he says, I have come. And that part is an indication it's the gospel message. I have come and he's come for a reason. The fact that he's come is the incarnation. He came and became like us. He, though being in very nature God, became like us, made himself nothing for a purpose. And for that purpose was that he would not only live our lives, but that he would take upon himself our sin and our misery. And then being crucified, he would pay the penalty that we deserve, but being resurrected, he would free us from our guilt and enable us to have the life abundantly that we desire that can only be found in him because God sent him to be the one in whom, from whom we receive that life. So the gospel is at work here that is not only reminding us that we are forgiven of our sin and restored and reconciled to God, but there's a tremendous reversal that is also taking place here that enables us to give a context to the catechism question that says the primary purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So there's a great reversal of everything that is taking place here. Now, with the understanding of the catechism question, I really appreciate the work John Piper did a few years ago. He recovered, I believe, the essence of the meaning, taking it from Jonathan Edwards, but saying that, you know, tweak that whole catechism answer ever so slightly by saying the primary purpose of man, is our purpose in life, the primary purpose of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so with that understanding, we now see something that is taking place in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ, who are experiencing the life abundant. And the word that he uses here is zoe, not bios. It's not a matter of, I've come so that you can breathe and have food. But he's come that you would have life to its fullness, to your dream. That you can have a taste of heaven and eventually heaven. Zoe, like the restaurant. And that is found in the various gifts that God has given to us. But ultimately it is found in God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of our lives is to glorify God. How do we do that? By enjoying God through the things that he has given us. The very things that Solomon found to be meaningless. When we are in Christ, instead of seeing these things as our ultimate hope, we see them not as stuff that we get from God, but stuff that we are able to give thanks to God for. We glorify God most when we are satisfied and thankful for the life and the gifts that he gives us of pleasure, of work and achievement, of relationships and every other gift that Solomon explored. But he was seeking an end in them rather than seeking the one who has given them. And we make the same mistake. Solomon pursued a hedonistic life. John Piper says the answer is being Christian hedonist. We find our greatest joy when we find it in God and recognize every blessing we have has come from him 
So does life have a purpose? It does. It's to glorify God by enjoying him now and forever. Father, open our eyes and open our hearts to receive this reality. Continually remind us that you have loved us 